Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Natasha Margolis with the New Books Network, and today I'm talking with Kathy Pice about her book, Information Hunters. Kathy, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, your work, and also uh, basically how you got started on this book and what kept you going? Well, I am a historian of 20th century um, U.S. Um, culture and society, and most of my work has dealt with gender, sexuality, and popular culture. So this book is quite a departure for me, and I started on it um, because I discovered a family story that um, just by chance, looking at um, a website, and learned that I had had an uncle who died before I was born, uh, who was a an intelligence agent for the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the CIA. And after the war, um, he was the head of a mission of the Library of Congress in Europe. And I found this very curious since I had never heard anything about him. Um, and he was a librarian. Um, and I just began researching his story, um, looking up articles he had published and trying to just track him down a bit out of pure personal curiosity. And I discovered this world of um, librarians, scholars, collectors, intelligence agents, um, and military people who were involved in acquiring books, other kinds of publications, as well as documents during World War II for the war effort. So your information hunters really start with the war. And um, it's with the librarians, which You've also talked about them as bookmen and women. And what was their contribution in the beginning when the United States was not involved in the war? Well, before the war began, um, there were concerns among uh, many in the scholarly community as well as in government about the United States getting into the next war. And some of the uh, people that I write about were interventionists, uh, the head of the Library of Congress, who was Archibald MacLeish, a famous uh, poet and playwright, and appointed to be the Librarian of Congress, was very concerned about um, how 
Americans would get the information that they needed if, in fact, um, it had to enter into the war. And so he was very aware of this issue of how American collections were not very um, um, good in their international holdings. And he kind of developed a relationship with another figure named William Donovan, who was known as Wild Bill Donovan. He was a Republican lawyer and political operator who um, went to Europe to try to understand what kinds of um, intelligence services the United States might need. And all of this was um, even before the war broke out. And so Donovan formed an alliance with uh, Archibald MacLeish, the Librarian of Congress, to find ways to bring information to the United States that might be useful for um, fighting the war. And when the librarians and these scholars were getting involved in the war, they were kind of continuing their normal role, um, what they did with collection development. But what sort of other things were they involved in? Well, the librarians were thought about themselves in terms of fairly standard um, ideas about librarianship, such as collection development and having want lists that would um, indicate all of the books that you would want and a kind of orderly way of um, of getting the books from commercial dealers. And of course, with the war, the international book trade um, completely shut down, largely shut down. And it was very difficult for any of the research libraries to get the materials that they had ordered. Um, so with the, uh, the effort of the, of the American government to search for new kinds of information, a decision was made to send a number of librarians and scholars abroad, in a sense, to act as agents collecting materials. And some of them did very standard things like um, subscribe to newspapers and magazines or get other people to subscribe for them. Um, but a lot of this information had to be gained through somewhat illicit methods, um, using um, sympathetic uh, uh, figures in governments in neutral um, countries. I'm thinking especially of Lisbon, um, Portugal, um, Stockholm, uh, Sweden, where there was a real effort to um, reach out to allied sympathizers who could bring, um, you know, newspapers from Germany or um, industrial manuals that had been forbidden to be um, reproduced or distributed, bringing them into um, uh, the allied uh, collections. I think it's interesting that normally when you think about World War II and you think about the conquered nations that the Germans had taken over, your information hunters went beyond that. Where other places did they go to to seek out some of these uh, desired collections? Well, in the first instance, they were sent to neutral um, cities around the world, not only in Europe, but there, there was a small operation in Istanbul and Cairo, not all that effective, but there was some information gained there. There was a fairly um, substantial operation in New Delhi and Chungcheng um, in Free China. Um, it was very hard in those places to acquire the materials they needed. Partly that had to do with the nature of the um, book trade and publishing industry in those places. Transportation problems were really severe, um, but uh, they got some materials that were of 
Books. And the belief was that the information that they were collecting, all these published materials, would be able to assist the United States in the war efforts to some extent. But um, the librarians, the book hunters, and the other information seekers out there kind of found that maybe there were other sources of information out there. One of the terms you used was open source. I was hoping you could explain that to the listeners today. Yes, so open source intelligence is a category of intelligence that in essentially it is um, public, publicly available information. And today, of course, that means, you know, s searching the Internet in all sorts of ways. I mean, open source information is very widely available. In the period of the war, open source intelligence would be um, newspapers, magazines, uh, books and other kinds of printed materials that were not marked secret or held in, in a secret way. And so these materials were um, kind of ordinarily available to, you know, in, in the best circumstances, but um, they often offered uh, the American government and the British government ways of gleaning information that would be useful, for example, learning about transportation patterns or the effect of bombing in German cities or even trying to figure out the number of deaths on a battlefield by reading obituaries. So the, essentially the analyzers used kind of scholarly techniques to understand these um, so-called open sources. Um, and the irony, of course, is that once they came to the United States as open sources, they were immediately classified as um, secret. And so the, the librarians and the collections um, that they're seeking are involved in this war effort. How did the U.S. involvement in the war directly start to affect the gathering of all these collections for the universities and other information people back in the United States? Well, there was a kind of, um, I would call it mission creep that happened where the initial aim of this project in a sense, which was let's bring in these newspapers and materials to the United States specifically for the war effort. As the war continued, um, some of these information hunters became attached to military units um, and would just try to scoop up whatever they could find as the Allies move forward um, in um, you know, liberating France, liberating Belgium. Um, and other occupied countries, and then entering into Germany and finally conquering Germany. And so the military was um, t taking lots of different kinds of materials, some of them archival materials, unique materials, but also um, published works. And massive amounts of these materials essentially were brought together into collecting centers where then they had to be sorted and you know, something needed to be done with them. And so the sorting of those materials were often done by people with library backgrounds or who had some knowledge of how to screen materials. And those that were not useful for, intel for intelligence were often sent back to the United States, to the Library of Congress, and ultimately um, distributed among a fairly substantial number of large research universities. One of the things I'm really impressed 
with in your book is you acknowledge the creativity of these information hunters and, and trying to get this information. And I'm kind of thinking very specifically about um, Max Loeb, who um, became uh, found a, a really different way of gaining information for the U.S. Can you talk about the creativity of our librarians and book hunters out there? Yeah, so Max Loeb is a very interesting individual. He um, was from a Jewish-German family. He, he emigrated to the United States in the 1930s. He had been a journalist, and when he came to the United States, he became a bookseller and had a bookshop in New York. He was... Um, uh, he enlisted in the army and was attached to a military intelligence um, unit that was connected to the OSS um, book collecting and publication collecting operations. And what Max Loeb did, he was in England, um, he decided really on his own to interview um, prisoners of war, German prisoners of war, who had some connection to the book trade or to the publishing or libraries. And what he was interested in was trying to identify where those collections were because um, due to the bombing raids of the Allies, the Germans had moved many of their collections out of their home institutions and hid them um, in the um, hinterlands, in small communities, in mines and caves and in castles. And so he was interested in getting the information about where these collections would be so that when the Allies um, took over Germany, they'd be able to find them and, um, and either restore them if they were you know, part of German cultural heritage, or if they were material related to um, Nazism or perhaps to the former regime, they could be seized and used by the Allied government. I think you give um, a really good indication of just the different types of information these groups are gathering and how they're assisting the war effort. But another um, kind of unseen consequence of this is that there are also, this information is kind of shaping the post-war world. And I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on how in 1945 things are starting to change. Yes. Yeah, so in 1945, the war over, um, the... The work of these librarians, scholars, and collectors um, shifts gears in certain ways. Um, there are really significant policy issues that um, the Allies face with the defeated nation of Germany, with the refugees and the like, and two of them involve the world of books. One of them is the policy of denazification that um, all of the Allies had agreed to, and that involved um, in addition to the, you know, removing uh, people with a Nazi background from um, positions of authority, um, to destroying, to collecting and ultimately destroying the um, books and other kinds of writing as well as media that supported Nazism, militarism, um, anti-Semitism, and racism. And so a policy was put in place to collect these materials and ultimately to um, destroy them. And that was a very, very controversial issue um, in the United States when news of this broke, you know, came forth to, um, to Americans at home. Um, another really major issue had to do with the discovery of 
millions of looted books along with the looted art that we're much more familiar with um, uh, through the Monuments Men. Um, millions of books had been uh, looted by uh, various Nazi looting teams, and these had been stored sometimes in institutions, but also in these mines and caves and uh, remote villages. And many of these sites were in the U.S. zone of occupation. And so suddenly the American um, military government had to figure out what to do with these books, how they could be restituted to their owners, um, and what to do with those that could not be identified or returned. And so this was a very big political issue that um, librarians were involved with as well. Now, the other thing I think that your monograph does an excellent job is is not only talking about what is happening before World War One, how how librarians and, and the and the bookmen are using their creative methods to get these resources, and then kind of adapting to this new uh, upcoming post World War that um, they they can't just stop doing this. They've got to deal with the consequences of all the materials that they've covered. So. Um, in your chapter, you kind of bring up this title of book burning, the American style, and I was hoping you could be more specific about what kind of things were deemed worthy of burning before it got to the American public. Yeah, so the real issue was what would stay in uh, available to Germans after the war, and there was a belief um, that was very strongly held by American social scientists and communications and education experts uh, that these volumes were dangerous. They were almost like a virus and that any um, Nazi ideology that school children might read in their textbooks or in even in like genre fiction, you know, mysteries and romances, that that was um, a danger um, and it was seen as a contributor to the rise of Nazism and was felt to be a danger to um, the ability of the Allies to try to reconstruct Germany along more democratic um, lines. And so they they were most concerned with the Germans having access to this material and the real question was, how far would you go to stop them? And the Americans, uh, and especially the British, were very reluctant to, um, you know, seize books in public libraries, for example. They were perfectly willing to um, have bookstores and publishers um, give up their books with Nazi content. Uh, the Soviet um, side of the um, Allies were much they had a much easier time just saying this this material is full of Nazi ideology. We're going to take it and we're going to destroy it. And that that included public libraries. And they were also prepared to go into private homes to go through personal libraries to find this material. Um, the four powers had to come to an agreement on this, and the agreement ultimately was that public that materials in public libraries that had a Nazi or militaristic content would be seized and destroyed. And in this case, the destruction of these materials was done in the context of pulping them for paper, which was in very, very short supply after the war. When the news of this 
became uh, announced to the American press and the stories appeared in the newspapers, there was an immediate association between what the Americans were doing and the earlier practice of Germans burning books. And the American military officials had a very hard time. Yeah, they kept saying, we're pulping the books, we're not burning the books. Um, but that distinction was one that was lost. Um, certainly among many librarians in the United States, um, among many scholars, the press, and some uh, members of Congress as well. It seems like a lot of these librarians kind of had to act like secret agents at various times, um, including your relative, who seemed to have had quite a lot of adventures in, in, in his participation as a bookman. What do you think that did for um, the way that material and collections and, and libraries were treated after the war? Well, I think that the libraries made a very strong case during the war, uh, especially the big research libraries, Library of Congress, New York Public, Harvard, etc., that these collections were important for the national interest, for national security, and that the post-war world would be one in which um, knowledge played a very large role in foreign policy and in the American uh, dominance in, you know, what came to be known as the free world um, after the war. And so I think that there was actually um, a buy-in on the part of uh, the government that, um, you know, these, that it was very important for libraries to have the collections, including the international holdings, that would be important for the future of American science, technology, and business. So I think this was um, seen as a moment of um, expansion for libraries that grew out in part of their participation in the war effort. You also make mention of a technology that was kind of relatively new at the time in the 1930s, but is kind of old hat to us now, which is microfilming. Could you explain the importance of microfilming um, during the war effort to gain all these the information in the book collections? Yes, microfilm was seen as this new technology in the way that our digital world is seen. Um, People thought that it was going to, um, you know, kind of save world knowledge uh, and, in fact, the ability to play, to put large quantities of um, newspapers and runs of cereals and the like on microfilm um, and have it in this very small container that could be, then be reproduced and distributed. That was the idea behind it. And it was a, it was not widely used in, before the war, except in, by some special libraries and the like. But the decision to use microfilm was really crucial for the war effort because it was um, it was so light in weight that um, compared to the magazines and newspapers that they were filming, there wouldn't have been enough um, cargo space on a on an airplane to ship these materials back to London or to Washington and to put them on a, I mean, it'd be dangerous to put them on a boat, but um, they, their value was if they were timely. And so they really needed to be sent immediately upon their being filmed to um, back to uh, Washington in order to be developed and distributed. So this was seen as a technology that was absolutely crucial for uh, reproducing and disseminating um, key information that might be useful for the war. 
and I think it's part of the largest collection still available in, in places like uh, the National Archives and Library of Congress today that nobody could replicate the sizes of these collections unless it had been on microfilm. Um, what is, do you think is the most important change that happened for the United States in understanding information and books and knowledge during this time period? Well, I think that the war um, accelerated a process that had already begun, and that is the rise of information science um, and an sort of information world that is now so familiar to us we don't really think twice about where it came from. Prior to the war, um, the, the physical book or the physical newspaper was really the way that people engaged with um, printed knowledge. And so you would read through the book or you might find in the index what you were looking for. The idea of information was to extract from that physical source the key nuggets that you might need in order to make them usable for some purpose. So there's a real functionality to knowledge um, in the information age. And this was before there were computers that did this work. And so the people in the uh, OSS who were involved in trying to make um, all of these newspapers, directories, scientific reports available to war agencies essentially went through a process of indexing these materials, um, writing abstracts of these materials, even providing full text translations of these materials. And this was done by large numbers of women um, and emigres because there was no computer technology available yet. And I think that's uh, kind of really key to understanding the changes that the Library of Congress and their collection policies, um, really the establishment of the National Archives as a, a, a different kind of information source, and then building all of these institutions, collections like Harvard and Hoover and other places that you mentioned. Um, I don't want to give away the ending of your book, but uh, can you maybe tell the listeners a, a little bit more about um, your relatives' role in all of this that kind of sucked you into it? Um, well, um, are you are you are you alluding to the Spinoza? Yes. Okay. Um, so, um, so when I was in high school, my father gave me a rare book um, in Latin. Um, that was a volume of Spinoza writing about Descartes. And the book was published in the Netherlands, I believe in the, the mid-17th uh, century. And he gave it to me because I was studying Latin in high school. And so for all of my life since then, I've carried this book around with me. It's been sitting in my bookshelves for years and years. And when I started this project, when I learned about my uncle Ruben Pice's um, involvement in intelligence gathering and the building up of the Library of Congress collections, I started to think about that book because it had been given by my uncle to my father before um, my uncle died. And so I took the book into our rare books um, librarian at the time, and he looked at it and he said, this is rather rare. And it felt like, you know, the Antiques Roadshow moment. <laughs> um, 
But what I learned about the book uh, after that was sobering, which is that the book had been looted from an aristocratic library in Silesia. Um, the looting, it's hard to know exactly who did the looting, either Germans fleeing that area or Russians coming into that area and how um, Ruben Pice acquired that book. I think I can speculate different possibilities, but I have no way of knowing. But for me, it really brought home this idea of how books, um, how much books were displaced and, um, you know, just moved all over uh, Europe and really around the world as part of the displacements of the war. We usually think about human refugees and we pay as we should, most attention to their um, situation. But it is also the case that culture um, is displaced, destroyed, um, changes hands. And I was really struck by the way that that was true, even with a book that had been in my possession for so long that I had no idea where it had come from. It seems like a, a lot of the fates of different peoples of Europe are tied also to the fates of the information about them and that these efforts during the war kind of saved some populations from extinction, if if not physically, but at least knowledge-wise. Um, is there something that you found the most helpful in your research? Was there one archive or there was one location that really kind of bolstered what you were looking for? And did you have to do a a lot of research in a lot of different places. Well, the core collections for me were those at the National Archives, which um, holds the records of the Office of Strategic Services and the um, military government um, in, uh, in Germany, known as AMGUS, Office of the Military Government of the United States. Um, those were extraordinary collections really, really large and hard to navigate, especially because I had never worked in military records before. Um, the other was the Library of Congress, where the um, papers of the Library of Congress mission to Europe, which was involved in gathering up um, uh, the books that had been published in Germany and occupied countries during the war years, that mission's work was also very central to project. But my research, um, it took me to many different places, um, to the University of Illinois, where the American Library Association papers are, uh, to the Hoover Institution, uh, to the Hoover Presidential Library in West Branch, Iowa, uh, Stanford, uh, the University of Regina in Saskatchewan had a set of papers of one of the monuments men who was involved in this work. And so, um, it took me to many different um, sites uh, in the U.S. Um, and this one in Canada and, of course, the British Library and the British National Archives. I think all of your hard work should be commended. Um, reaching out to all these different places and, and pulling it all together in this one volume, which has rapidly increased the historiography of information in war. And um, I'm really glad that I got to talk with you today about this. Is there a project you're currently working on or something that you have almost in the works? Well, I um, this took me a very long time and I'm taking a little bit of a break. Um, 
and I'm having a lot of wonderful opportunities to talk to um, people about the book since it just came out um, in January. So some of, it, of what I'm doing right now is, is really following up on the book um, project itself. I have another project that is that I was working on kind of for a while before the information hunters um, uh, grabbed my attention for many years. Uh, and that is a project that has to do with the um, formation of the mass middle class in the mid-20th century and the forms of um, material culture like clothing, household goods, and the like that women were involved in uh, designing, promoting, um, and uh, being essentially uh, tastemakers. So it's a completely different um, project taking me back into women's history. Well, it sounds like it, you followed your um, your Ruben Pice connection very nicely and being creative in, in your work and, and adapting to information that you're finding out and also culling your interests together to create new things. I'm glad you're getting this opportunity to talk about this work. And I really appreciate you talking with me today. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you so much. Thank you.